welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that looks at the technical and inspirational and artistic side of Star Wars and its creators. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week we have a special treat for you. Uh, we are going to be continuing our chapter-by-chapter chapter analysis of Alan Dean Foster's 1978 classic, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. But before that, we are going to be taking a look at uh, the art, the aesthetic of the Star Wars films. Uh, in specific this week, we're looking at the original trilogy, and we have set a challenge for ourselves that we are to pick a shot from each film that we think speaks to the aesthetic of Star Wars, what you would show to somebody to say to them, this is what you can expect uh, visually from these films. Uh, so before we get into that, remember, of course, we're on the nerdparty.com. You can uh, make contact with the show at the nerdparty.com slash contact. You can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the nerdparty. Reach out to the show through the network Twitter account at join nerd party or on Instagram at the nerd party using the hashtag great shot kid and let us know your own thoughts about what what images from these films you would use if somebody asked you what can I expect what images you would show them as with a fair expectation so with all of that out of the way Mike I think the first question to ask is to set the mindset is what is a word you would use to describe the aesthetic of the original Star Wars trilogy? If you had to be pinned down to one word, maybe a few words, one word might be too much, but if you, one word or a sentence for the aesthetic. Lived in sci-fi. Lived in sci-fi. The idea that this is a futuristic world with futuristic tech where everything is uh, much more advanced than what we're used to here on Earth, but with that realistic portrayal of, you know, it's new to us, but it's not new to them. And, you know, even though we may have iPhones, that doesn't mean the screens aren't going to be cracked. You know what I mean? I do. I do. I, I like that. I think that that very much speaks to uh, the, the Star Wars aesthetic. Uh, absolutely. Uh, especially in the original trilogy is, is that sense of a lived in feel for me. If I were to use a, a, a word or a phrase, it would be documentary fiction. Yeah. And I think that ties into the lived in sci-fi thing because the strength of these films is the approach has always been, I'm telling you a fantastical story but I'm going to present it as if it's reality. Yeah. I'm not going to try to dress it up and trick you with Dutch angles and anything too far off the wall. It's going to feel like you're the proverbial fly on the wall witnessing real events. That that's uh, I think we're we're in the same ballpark there. So with that in mind, that of course would bring us to our first shot from the original Star Wars. If you were to pick a shot and, you, you know, you can feel free to talk about uh, process, you know, wh what your thinking was getting there and stuff like that. What is the shot that you would put down on a table if somebody said, I've never seen Star Wars, what can I expect? And you say, this shot right here, this is what you can expect. Yeah, this exercise is really hard, and I'm not exactly sure that I did a good job on any of these, to be honest, because, like, my initial thought was, like, 
well, what what is it? I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, I think like the perfect shot would be like Luke sitting at the bar in the cantina, you know, yeah, because it's sure. like, you know, but, but at the same time, I, I guess I kind of felt like I needed to go more for like the iconic shots in order to give a better idea of what, not just what was a typical shot, but what was sort of like what I think of when I think of the Star Wars aesthetic. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what I ended up going with was the shot of um, Luke at the homestead looking at the two sons. Easily one of the most iconic shots in film history. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it's iconic, but also, I mean, the thing about it, which is striking, I think, and which makes it stand out and makes it Star Wars is it's showing that this is an alien world where there's not one, but two suns. But at the same time, it's an alien world where, you know, there's technology in the background. There's like a, a, a moisture evaporator, which is this piece of equipment, which we don't have on Earth. And then there's, you know, like a clay hut and like a guy you know, dressed in, you know, tattered clothes, essentially, you know, who's just like a working class kid who's dreaming of that thing, which is the same thing that we're dreaming about, really, by watching the movie, you know, going to a better world, going to, you know, something which will blow their mind. And so I guess that's that to me sums up Star Wars more than anything. I think it's a completely valid choice. I mean, there's a reason that everybody continually gravitates to that scene, to that that image of... And and the thing is, I think that, uh, you know, what you just highlighted speaks to the whole lived-in universe and I think also speaks to, you know, the, the documentary fiction of these are two sons, but he's doing something that anybody on a planet that we know, Earth, would do, looking off into the sunset. It contextualizes everything alien to us in that picture as the way we would consider our own technology it's just there so no i i I mean it's a completely valid choice it was definitely in contention for me and i was very much leaning toward it because it does speak to the spirit of the film but then i remembered that as a kid a shot that i absolutely fixated on that was in a lot of storybooks and press materials and those sorts of things was actually the shot of Obi-Wan and Vader, sabers crossed, facing off against each other. There's that that still shot. And of course, in all of the supplementary materials that they sold the kids, the, the, the sabers didn't look like they did in the movies. They were always, you know, the, the hand painted in. And I, I think that really speaks to it because you have this whole sense of good wizard, bad wizard, laser sword technology. Like it, it's this obvious collision of all of these crazy ideas coming together. And it, I, I mean, I remember it captivating me as a kid and looking at it and saying, there, there's something familiar about it. There's a sword fight going on and there are these soldiers there, but it's different than what I'm expecting. It's not Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. But then I, there's also another shot that was in contention, and it's the final shot of them looking out with their medals on, at, you know, smiling, beaming out. You know, to to the world, that classic sort of group shot at the end of togetherness and love and family. But I, I'd have to say I have to go to the shot of Ben and Vader with their sabers crossed. That's just because I, I think it speaks to 
this is a familiar type of story, but it's an environment you're not expecting. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. Two larger-than-life figures, one very mechanical, one very, you know, spiritual, you know, facing off in a, you know, spaceship for all practical purposes. That definitely uh, works uh in a lot of ways, but but I definitely do see the, uh, the the other shots that you're talking about as well. I mean, there's so many shots throughout the movie that it's impossible to sort of like pick just one. And and I think the fact that, like you're saying, you saw it in all of the the marketing material and everything like that, all of the the books and stuff really sort of speaks to the idea that in a lot of ways, the Star Wars aesthetic travels beyond the movies and sort of has become part of the larger culture. And because of that, it's hard to sort of narrow your focus back down to the movies for an exercise like this. Yeah, it is. You know, it's um, because when we were discussing this, it seemed like it was going to be a lot easier. You know, oh, I'm just going to, I'll pick this shot. And just going through the screen caps uh, and, you know, oh, that's really good. Oh, that's great. Oh, that, you know, that's iconic. Uh, So, yeah. All right. So we've got Star Wars sunset laser sword fight we get to empire strikes back we have a different cinematographer we have a different director but it's still part of the star wars aesthetic what do you wind up choosing how does it stitch together how does it tie into what came you know what you chose before and why did you choose uh, this one well i think in a lot of ways empire to me represents sort of like an expansion of everything that was done on star wars you know, I, I mean, I, I do still firmly believe that the only reason why Star Wars is as massively successful and popular as it is today is because of Empire. I mean, I think that it would still be considered, you know, a masterpiece, you know, if it uh, were just Star Wars. But I don't think it would be the cultural phenomenon that it is now without Empire. And because of that, I wanted to pick a shot which sort of represented uh, an uptick in quality <laughs> from an on on, on sort of a, a visual sure, level, sure. Uh, but one that also sort of captured, you know, the the other elements which made Empire so much better than Star Wars, in my humble opinion, which are things like uh, the the greater character development and the strengthened relationships and the ominous nature of the story in general, the idea that, you know, the bad guys win. And so I picked uh, a shot from uh, the carbon freezing scene in which yeah. uh, uh, Han and Leia are looking at each other standing on opposite sides of the frame and in the background out of focus is Darth Vader and Boba Fett who are having the conversation that we hear talking about sort of trivial procedural matters regarding what to do you know if Han Solo dies and you know what we're focusing on as viewers is the relationship between Han and Leia and how they, you know, just sort of discover this and it's all about to come crashing down. So that, and, and, you know, the fact that it is on a set with some of the best lighting in the history of cinema. Agreed. That, that was, that was really important to me as well. So that was the shot that I picked. 
Okay, I think that I think that's a, a very very valid choice. I, I really do. I, you know, with Empire, I wound up initially gravitating toward uh, a lot of the dual images. You know, Vader and, and Luke again in the in the carbon freezing chamber, um, and Luke and one sequence and that I'm obsessed with visually very much is after Luke. It starts with Luke stepping into the tunnel that lights up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the long tunnel and coming down, but then when he's in there and he's lit from below and everything's red and in shadow, and he he turns around after hearing Vader igniting his saber, and you can see this hallway off to the left, and it's it's an afterthought because Vader walks into frame almost immediately afterward, but it's this sense of you see how small Luke is in this big world, how out of place he is, how lost he is in this technological underbelly but as obsessed as I am with that I think again I'm influenced by stuff that I saw in a lot of materials growing up and it's in specific a shot of Yoda R2 and Luke on Dagobah because I think that again speaks to the aesthetic I think that's a beautifully lit scene because it's a completely convincing set it's supposed to be an outdoor swamp, and it looks like an outdoor swamp, even though it's an indoor contrivance. And I think it speaks again to the idea that we're going to sell you the fantastic, this idea of a puppet, and then a robot, and a dude. And this is real, and this is happening. And I just... That so for that that's the one that pops to me. Yeah, well, I mean that's a very good one for sure. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you could say that you know since Luke is sort of the heart of the story and everything, and this is you know the next step in his evolution and and all that stuff that that it's it's almost necessary to include something like that uh, in the shot. Um, so yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Cool. All right, so we come to my favorite of the series. Uh, at, Return of the Jedi. Where do you end? Where 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 do you end up? Yeah, this one was was really hard because, like, the things that I consider to be like thematically important to the to the movie are not necessarily my favorite parts of the movie. And you know, there's a lot of stuff that you could do with Luke and Vader at the end. And uh, you know, the the shot that I ended up picking was, I think, thematically very important to the movie, although it may not be my favorite shot, but it is a very striking shot. And it's and it's also a shot that which I always remember because it was the last shot before a side break on, uh, I think, pretty much every Laserdisc that was released. And that is the shot uh, where Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker first begin their lightsaber duel, and the lightsabers cross right in front of a close-up of Mm -hmm. the emperor who's laughing and that to me i don't know it says a lot because for one thing it's like yes darth vader and luke skywalker are going to have their final battle but the person who's winning no matter who no matter who wins the person who really wins is the emperor and he's the one who's really excited about this because he knows the score and also seeing his uh, excitement and seeing his pleasure in this uh, suggests that maybe Darth Vader himself is not uh, the evil person that uh, we have come to know him to be. 
but in fact just sort of a victim in this this larger this larger game you know so i like that i i mean it's it's a beautiful shot i think it's a, a great choice uh i know the the specific shot you're talking about of course i think everybody does and i think that um it is an important enough shot and i think it's a telling enough shot that uh that one time i think it was on the dvd where they got the color saturations wrong that's why everybody had a problem with that yeah <laughs> was, was the shot was messed up and was no fix it um yeah that's that's a really strong choice that that is probably probably a better choice than uh than the one i wound up with which one of one of the shots that I've always been obsessed with is um, uh, it's when it, it's when Jabba the Hutt says, uh, you know, Gusliaknot, you know, and the, the subtitle says, bring her to me. Mm-hmm. That shot, for some reason, has always fascinated me. And I've tried to figure out why repeatedly. And I think it gets back to the idea of here's a giant puppet, a guy in makeup and a guy in a robot costume. But there's nothing special about the shot necessarily. It's just the way it's framed. If you stop and you really look at it, you realize the absurdity of what you're watching, but it sells it to you. So that that pops for me. But then, oh man, see, I keep coming back to your choice because I think it's a really great choice. But the one I, I wound up with after toying with the idea of having the one of the... Uh, you know them walking out and seeing the the ATST and all of the troops out in front before the Ewoks attack. I realized the reason I was gravitating toward that one, and I wound up choosing the very iconic shot of the Falcon flying through the swarm of fighters with a Death Star in the background and everything like that. Is I think that the sequence goes along where you can see scale, so that you can understand as you go through that there's this very basic simplicity to Star Wars and then it gets more complex and a little murkier and then you have this explosion of scale in Jedi and I think that's probably why I chose that shot is suddenly everything has just built and you get the sense of everything building until it's you look at this one picture and you say look at everything that is going on in here and it's just overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's definitely a great shot. And one of the things which I kept on uh, thinking about was like whether or not I could use something from that sequence because that's by far my favorite sequence in the movie. You know, and, and those shots, I think, just as shots are better than the one that I chose. And uh, if if we were talking about just favorite shots from uh, particular uh, movies, I probably would have gone with something like that for sure. Yeah, it's tough too because the thing is, does that mean that I'm picking, you know, the the head of model photography as, <laughs> but to you know, I guess maybe in a certain sense, yeah. Sometimes uh, that's that's what it is, you know. Yeah, you know. Uh, so, those are our shots. Uh, those are our great shots, kid. <laughs> uh, we would be very interested to know. You know what what you guys think. So uh go ahead and reach out to us on uh nerdparty.com slash contact and uh and let us know. So uh with our and we will be posting a link to our favorite shots uh so that everybody can see them um you know when the show releases. So be on the lookout for those. So that brings us to chapter two of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, 
like uh which furthers the the story uh if everybody remembers from last week in chapter one uh luke and leia are flying along on a special mission leia's in a y-wing that has two seats because 3po's in it r2 is with luke she has engine trouble long story short they wind up crash landing on mimbin Sercarpus five in the system and luke sets out to find leia so that brings us to chapter two Mike, what happens in Chapter 2? Well, in Chapter 2, Luke seems to find Leia a lot quicker than he initially thought he would, uh, which was, you know, lucky on his part, I guess. I don't know. Yes. And uh, the two of them decide to continue their trek to find something, civilization of some sort, so that they can, you know, get uh, some transport or whatever and get off to their... uh, to their rendezvous. So they begin their search, and in their search, you know, after a a couple days, I guess, they come across um, a building of some sort, some sort of metal structure, which uh, is home to some stormtroopers. And now they have to, uh, you know, ditch their, their, their rebel gear in order to sort of blend in and maybe find out what happens next yeah they uh they find out there's a mining colony there uh and they had they ditch their clothes uh there's an interesting ethical moral moment where luke says they're going to have to steal some miners clothing so that they can blend in and leia balks at that and luke basically says don't worry i'll be the one to steal it and then she's okay with it and it's one of those things where it that's sort of a moral question. You're still responsible for the stealing if you're taking, you know, like it, it's one of those things where it seems to murky up some of the clear morals we're used to getting with Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of weird. I mean, I, I really don't think that she would have a big problem with it. I think she realizes, you know, what what is involved with war and, you know, stealing some clothes from some locals in order to try to, you know, prevent, you know, like uh, the the Empire from taking over your planet. You know, I mean, you got to weigh the good with the bad and stealing a, a few jumpsuits is pretty low on the the, the list of uh, immoral acts, if you ask me. Um, yes. War <laughs> yeah. atrocities or whatever. So, you know, that was weird. But that does kind of speak to a, a larger thing which you see in this chapter, which is the idea of portraying Leia as a princess first and a soldier second. You know, this is something which I don't think is present in the first movie, but certainly in the first movie, since she is on a diplomatic mission at the start and is basically scrambling after that, we don't get to see, like, warrior Leia like we do in the later uh, episodes. And, of course, you know, I think starting with Empire, it becomes absolutely clear that Leia would have absolutely no problem, you know, you know, running around in the dirt, rolling around in the dirt, you know, in order to to further her cause, you know, and she's not the sort of uptight um, princess in the stereotypical sense that uh, she's portrayed to be in this in this chapter. Yeah, and there, there's, you know, 
you try to think of it in terms of, you know, here we are, you know, several decades later, and I can only imagine the way this would have been written now would have been very different because this chapter opens with Leia deciding to sit still and wait for Luke to come and save her. And I think that that would not have been written that way in, in the modern era. Yeah. And, but it's not, it's not just saying that she is, and, and I think you, you, you point to it uh, appropriately. She's not treated as quote unquote helpless because she's female. She's treated as to use your term, princess first soldier second. So it's she's a princess, and so she's prim and proper. Luke even says when they when they get their disguises on, you're walking like a princess. Slouch, sw- stagger a little bit. Don't walk regally like you're a member of the imperial household. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 speaks to it that it's he's not he's not treating her in this way because she's female. He's treating her in this way because she's royalty. And I think that was dropped very quickly with Empire. Yeah. Because, you know, yes, she's Princess Leia, but then by the time we get to Empire, she's not in the, she's not in the, you know, the the white dress anymore, and she's not damsel in distress. She's picking up a gun, and she's running the rebellion. Mm -hmm. There's a very different sense of Leia in Empire than there was uh, in this book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you know it's it's a lot of walking. We now have we now have two chapters under our belt. What do you think of Alan Dean Foster's writing style by this point? I think it's good. I mean, comparing it to a lot of the the books that I've read recently in the Star Wars expanded universe or whatever you want to call it, I think that uh, maybe maybe it's because he's he's a good writer, or maybe it's because. He was not bogged down by, you know, decades of fandom and whatever, but it actually reads much more like English than lots of those books because there aren't a bunch of made up things that they're doing all the time. So, I mean, it's kind of the Star Wars equivalent of Technobabble, even though it's not Technobabble, it's just so much world building, you know, treated as just everyday stuff that... You know, I guess trying to capture what Lucas did with that aesthetic that we talked about earlier in this episode, but it does not play the same on the page. In fact, it this, I think, does a much better job of portraying this world as a reality because they're talking about things which we can relate to as people. I, I agree with you. The The thing that jumped out at me more in this chapter than the first chapter is that Foster uses vocabulary that you're not used to getting in modern uh, extended fiction, that, which is not to say that it's bad in the modern fiction, but that he is writing with a more adult tone toward a different audience. The The books that come out now are very well written by and large, but they're very much written with a broader audience in mind so that if a 10-year-old picks it up or a 40-year-old picks it up, everybody's going to have essentially the same experience. Whereas if I gave this book to my 10-year-old, who is a voracious reader, there are words in this where she would stop and she would say, what does this mean? And I'd have to define it for her because that's just the type of vocabulary that he uses. 
you know that and i think that's just interesting in and of itself because he doesn't he doesn't slow down for any reason he's just writing in alan dean foster style for this yeah yeah that's cool yeah so we hope you're uh you're joining along with us we're only two chapters in so there's still time for you to pick up your copy of alan dean foster's uh splinter of the mind's eye at your local library so you can read along uh, come in and join us next week for uh, chapter three, and where we will also pick a shot from each of the prequel trilogy films to uh, to extend our experiment about the Star Wars aesthetic. In the meantime, Mike, where can people reach you on the internet? Uh, well, you can find me on commentarytrackstars.com doing a show called Commentary Trackstars, and you can also find me on track.fm doing a show called The Edge and another show called Stage 9 along with you. And then you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. Yes, and you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie. And I am co-hosting Stage 9 with Mike over on Trek FM, which is like this show, but for Star Trek creators. And you can find me back here on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing. And I'm out there co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. So we look forward to seeing you next week on Great Shot Kid. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.